So last week we saw how Jesus made a mess of the temple. Turned over the tables, the money changers' tables, just created a chaos within in the courtyard of the temple. And uh, this weekend, uh, he's going to have to answer for the, his actions. We're going to see how he's going to have to answer. And so what happens is the religious leaders um, challenge him and they question his authority. And uh, there's this uh, group we call the Sanhedrin. And they're composed of different religious parties. And a representative, representatives of this, the Sanhedrin come out and they begin to question Jesus. And they essentially say, by what authority do you do this? In other words, who gave you the right to do this? <laughs> right? And so that's the question they ask him. It's a valid question for them to ask it. Now think about this. Notice where Jesus is. He's in the courtyard, and we're going to read about this in a minute. He's in the courtyard. He's in the courtyard of the Gentiles. He's at the temple. This is the place. This is their home court. This is where they, they are boss, and this is their place. So Jesus came into their house and disrupted everything. This is what's going on. And so they come to Jesus and they say, how dare you? Who are you? How, where do you get the authority to do this? So I was trying to think of a modern day way to describe what Jesus did. The best way, and it's interesting what Jesus says. He says, I will tell you by what authority I do this, but first I have a question for you. Okay, that's how he answers it. So we'll read about that. So picture yourself as a lawyer. And one of the greatest privileges of any lawyer is to go before a, a, a higher court. The greatest court you could ever be a lawyer before is the Supreme Court. So imagine you're, you're bringing your brief to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court is going to determine a, a, a law that's going to affect the whole country and you are the one that's representing the view. And you're, you're there to defend why they should affirm your view. And one of the justices of the Supreme Court says to you, uh, you bring this, this argument, uh, you know, give us a reason why we should go along with what you're saying. Now, I've never been there. I've never even seen that. They're kind of private. But I know one thing you don't say. You don't say to a Supreme Court justice, I'll answer your question after you answer a question I have for you. You just don't do that. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. So let's read that passage. It's in uh, Mark chapter 11, starting at verse 27. And if you, if you want to follow along in the chair Bible, it's page 823. Or if you're joining us at one of our campuses or online, you can look it up. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. Let me read through that now. Now with that context, you understand the severity and the, the significance of this meeting. It's not just an ordinary meeting. This is a, this is the, this is a huge, important meeting. They arrive in, again in Jerusalem, but while Jesus was walking into the temple courts, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, those the representatives of the Sanhedrin, and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? Now, doing these things is referring to him when he turned, overturned the tables. And they asked him, and who gave you authority to do this? Jesus replied, I will ask you a question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, talking about John the Baptist, was it from heaven or of human origin? Tell me. 
They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, Then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, and notice some of your translations have this in parentheses because it's giving us kind of insight to what they were thinking. They feared the people for everyone held that John really was a prophet. So Jesus has them on a kind of a two-edged sword here. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. So Jesus asks them a question that they can't answer. They, they, they know, and essentially they, they didn't really see John as a prophet, but if they say that, they're going, to have an, they're going to have a major riot on their hands. So Jesus wins out. But then he goes on and he, he tells a parable. Jesus began to speak to them in, in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for uh, the wine press and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. They sent another servant to, then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head. Now, remember that they struck this man on the head because that's going to be significant in a moment. We'll talk about it. And treated him shamefully. He sent another, still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had left one, he had le- one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, this one uh, saying, this, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read the passage of Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken that parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left and went away. So I want to talk just for a minute about the symbolism of the vineyard. The vineyard represents the nation of Israel. We see all through the Old Testament that the vineyard, God talks about the vineyard. And uh, as we read through this, God says, and we're going to read a couple passages, that he's provided everything for his people. He has been there for his people. And uh, they rebelled against God. In Jeremiah 20, and you don't have to write these down, but I'll give you the references. Jeremiah 2.21, it says, I planted you, talking about God planting the nation of Israel like a vineyard. I planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? Uh, Another writing uh, prophet, uh, this is uh, Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleaned it of stones and planted it with the choices of vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut, cut out a wine press as well. And then uh, he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. So it seems like Jesus is referring back to this Isaiah passage. So that's the first thing, that the vineyard represents the nation of Israel. Secondly, the owner of the vineyard sends his servants and they are brutally beaten and killed. Now, this represents 
the Old Testament prophets that God sent continually to his people, and his people did not want to listen. They did not want to obey. Let me read you a couple of passages. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 25. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not, they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were, they were stiff-necked and did evil, more evil than their ancestors. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 26. They were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. Let me give you one more. 2 Chronicles 36. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, sent word to them through the messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. Now, the traditions of the martyrs is clear. You can read about it. They were, uh, the prophets were clear because they became martyrs. Uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, and Amos. It's well known they became martyrs. And what, what Jesus is saying in this parable is that the religious leaders of his day, those representatives of the Sanhedrin, you are just like the Old Testament people when, the, when God sent a prophet into your midst. You mistreated them. And you're going to do the same to me. Now it's interesting because one of the phrases, and I told you to make note of this, it says that one of the, one of the uh, servants that the owner of the vineyard sent was kind of struck on the head. Now, that's an interesting Greek word. It can mean to decapitate. Now, it, you know that if you've been following along in this Mark series, that John the Baptist, what happened to him? He was decapitated. It's very likely that Jesus is throwing a reference in here to the, the, uh, John the Baptist and, and, and how he became a martyr. Now, the third, the third thing about this vineyard, the owner makes one final plea. So he says, what am I going to do? I will send my beloved son. And what do the tenants do? They kill him and throw him out of the vineyard. Uh, this son, of course, is Jesus, who was rejected and crucified. So Jesus is essentially saying, not only were you brutal to the prophets that have come, uh, but you now are going to treat me the same way. And it's clearly, you know, what the religious leaders are saying. What are, the, what are these? They plotted a way to kill him. So Jesus is absolutely clear on his destiny. He knows what, what's going to happen. Now, the, uh, the, 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 one other thing. The owner will now bring judgment to the tenants of his vineyard. And this is referring to a coming judgment. There's going to be a coming judgment. But there's one last thing he says about it. It's very interesting. Jesus goes on to say that the rejected son would become the chief cornerstone of this new community. And he says the, 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 the stone that the builders rejected is going to be the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone. Now, what does it mean when they say that Jesus, and, and he's saying this about himself, he's taking an Old Testament prophecy and he's saying, this applies to me. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the cornerstone of a new community. What does that mean? Well, in Acts it says this, the stone you, and this is Peter, Peter is saying this uh, about Jesus, the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Um, if, another passage, Peter writes, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, uh, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to, to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, 
Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus, Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. And then he says this, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given uh, to mankind by which it must be saved. So here's what's going on. This final, in the parable, this final mistreated son was crucified, his death, burial, and resurrection laid a foundation for a new community. So Jesus is essentially predicting that through his death, burial, and resurrection, there's going to be a new, he's going to be a new cornerstone for a new building, a new community, and we call that the church. That's what he's saying in this parable. Now some of it the religious leaders understood, they caught it. But there are implications of that that they could not possibly have seen. Now, all that to say, so what? We know what the parable means. We know that Jesus is uh, clever, in a sense, that he got himself out of answering the question by giving a question. We know that he told a parable that referred to the religious leaders of his day, but so what? What What does that mean for us as we leave and as we go about our day, as we go about our week? Well, I want to talk talk about two critical lessons for us to learn. And the the first one is this, and these are in your notes. The first one is this, that we're only guests and tenants living in his world. One of the things that this parable brings out is that you may think that you live in your house and it's your car and it's your your, your yard or whatever it is, but in, in reality, we are living as tenants in his place. It's his vineyard. It's his world. We are guests here. We are tenants here. We live, but we live in a world where we want to establish ourselves as lords of our little world. We want to be God in our own world. And we want to be God in our own life. And what we have to understand is we've misunderstood the structure of the universe. The universe wasn't created for us. The universe was created for God. We exist not for our glory, and for what we want, we exist for His glory and what He wants. And when we align ourselves with that principle, we begin to see why we were created and why we exist. See, we often reject the reality that we are creatures of God who live in His vineyard. We are guests, we are caretakers of this world. And the, finally, the Father, finally, in a last-ditch effort in the parable, uh, He sends His beloved Son, but many still reject Him, just like in that day. Many people today say, I don't want anything to do with God. And most of the time, I think, there's a a reason because they say, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like, I don't really want God telling me what to do. And I just want to say, if you don't understand that you are a guest and a tenant in his vineyard living in this world, you do not understand your residency. Second point is this, that we're called to be, to create a community for his glory. So Jesus calls his church 
to be his community here on earth. And that's the cornerstone. Essentially, it says Jesus is going to be the cornerstone. Peter says, this is the cornerstone. The cornerstone is a new community. It's a new relationship to God. And, and we relate to God in a different way. But we relate to God on the foundation of the gospel, on the foundation of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He lays the foundation where we have this new community. Now, we're called to create a new community for his glory. Now, how do we accomplish this and how are we doing? So I want to just jump back and you, you just write the references down because we've gone through this. Jesus has, has kind of laid out a blueprint for what this faith community should be. So you say, what, should a what kind of church should I look for? Now, we often do this. We say, well, I want a church that has good kids programs. And I get that. I want a church where there's good preaching. Well, maybe you, or maybe you do or don't get that. Uh, but, you know, we, we look for certain things. We want good music. We want this or that. But this, essentially, what does God want for this new community? What does he want his church to be? Because churches have an identity. They have the best potluck going, you know. They, they, are, they are all about this. They're all about that. But what should we be about? Well, Jesus tells us. The first thing is that we're to be a prayerful community. Jesus said, my house has been, will be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you've made it a den of robbers when he went in the temple. Jesus says, this was meant to be a place of coming together for prayer, that you pray for one another. And Scripture, we're told in the New Testament that we're to pray for one another. How do you pray for one another? Do you know each other? In this room? On the other campus? Do you, do you really know each other? Well, you really probably don't. That's why we, we want you to be part of a life group because one of the things that hopefully every life group is doing, ours does, is we spend time at the end praying for one another because that's what Jesus wants his church to do, to pray for each other. And many of you are part of a group where that's taking place. So you say, why should I be part of a life group? Because we pray for one another. We bear one another's burdens. We care for one another. We forgive one another. We love one another. Secondly, we're called to be an inclusive community. Jesus said he wanted the temple to be this courtyard where they were buying and selling and doing all this trading. He said, I want it to be for all the nations. In other words, everyone was to be included. Everyone. You read the book. You know, it's interesting to me, and I know I've said it before. It's interesting to me that people say, well, I wish we could just establish a church that would go back to the beginning of Acts. Well, I don't, because they didn't really have it figured out. They thought only Jews were going to be included in this new church, this new community. In fact, they had to have an actual council where they sat down in Acts 15 and says, okay, I guess we're going to let the Gentiles in, because they have the same Holy Spirit that we have. I guess they're part of the church. Well, duh, Jesus said that in, in Acts 1.8. Now, again, this is a church that's growing and learning and developing, but Jesus' vision for the church that it would be all-inclusive, that people wouldn't be exclusive because they're from a different nation or they look different or they have different... You know, you just... We, we come together because God, Jesus wants us to come together. We welcome all people. His church should be a place where everyone finds a home, no matter what they look like. Number three, we're to be a forgiving community. Mark eleven twenty five 25 says this. We'll talk about this 
Uh, we've talked about this. When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. One of the one of the things that you 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 learn hopefully early as a follower of Jesus Christ is forgiveness is not an option. You don't have an option of whether you're going to forgive somebody. You just do it. And Jesus says, and this is why you do it, not because they deserve it, not because they've come groveling on, the, on their faces to you. You forgive them because I forgave you. You didn't deserve it, but I forgave you. It says we're to forgive as we've already been forgiven by our Father in heaven. See, we often hold back forgiveness for a number of reasons. And I'm, I'm so glad that my Father in heaven doesn't hold back His forgiveness for me. Because I need it every day. Let me, let me correct that. I don't need it every day. I need it about every hour. <laughs> if I'm honest. And we'd hope I'd be honest about that, right? Here's the, here's the next thing. We're to be a devoted community. Jesus, uh, and we're going to talk about this later on in the future, uh, Jesus said, uh, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. So a devoted community is one that basically, and this is what the early church did really well. They shared their resources so that, and we're going to talk about our, our Good Samaritan uh, offering following communion. But that's kind of the essence, essence of the Good Samaritan offering, that we pool our resources together so that people who need help have help, that we're devoted to one another, that we care about each other. And we don't just say, hey, I'll pray for you. We actually step in and do something about it. We actually try to intervene and help if we can. And so it's really important. So our money is a tangible way to show our care and concern for our faith community and for our community at large. You know, one of the things that I've always wanted, I've said this over and over and over, and maybe you've heard me and you can just dismiss it, but I've always wanted us to be a church, not see, to be a church that's taking from the community, but giving to the community. That's what I, my vision for the church, I think that's what Jesus' vision for the church is, that we're here to serve this community. And sometimes that means pulling our wallets out and writing a check or, or giving online or doing something and and part of our Christmas Eve is going to be giving to the, 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 uh, the things that we think are going to make it a better community and make us a stronger church and, and, and help us to be more effective in, in serving our community. Finally, we're to be a loving community. Mark 12, 30 and 31, we're going to look at this next week. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is love your neighbor as yourself. There's no greater command than these. <laughs> and they, go, they go hand in hand. We'll talk more about that next weekend. But we can summarize the many commands in Scripture to two. Love God and love others. We can't. And here's the thing. And we'll talk more about this next weekend. You really can't show your love for God in a vacuum. You really can't say I love God. In fact, 1 John says, you can't say, I love God and I hate my brother. <laughs> and and, and what, what John, I think, is saying is, you show your love for God by how you love your brother or sister. This is how you do it. It's hard for you to, to show love for God, who you can't see and you can't touch, but you hate your brother or sister. Or you don't forgive them. 
And so your, your way that you show your love is tangible. Your love for God is tangible in the way you treat another person, whether you forgive them, whether you pray for them, whether you care for them. Whether you, you know, and, and it's not just your, your, your faith community. It's, it's the people you come in contact with. So here's the point. God expects His vineyard, His church, to be an accepting, prayerful, forgiving, devoted, and loving community built around His Son. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone, the foundation that brings us all together on His kingdom mission. And if we're all on mission, then we're not looking out for what's best for me. We're looking out for what's best for the community. And we realize that our actions affect this whole community, not just us. Now, I know that goes against the grain of our culture because our culture is pretty individualistic-minded. It's pretty, pretty much me first, and then if I have time, others. Where the, 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 this new community says, what about others? How do I serve others? So where are you at? You know, we could call ourselves a fig tree, but are there figs? Remember we talked about that last week? The fig tree showed signs of life. All the activity was happening, but the heart wasn't in it, right? We talked about that last week. You can call yourself a fig tree, but are there figs? That's the whole theme of the Gospel of James. You could say you have faith, but you, do you have works to back it up? Because I'll, James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, I have fruit that shows there's life. Do you? <laughs> we can call ourselves His people, but is our life characterized by a lack of power and lack of faith and prayer? And, and prayer? We can call ourselves a church of love and acceptance and grace, but do we show love and grace and mercy and acceptance? Do we do that? Do people feel that they're accepted? Listen, let's be quite honest about who we have gathered this, this weekend. We have gatherings this weekend at the Hope campuses, I can't speak for the other ones, that are sinners. They don't have their life together. And their marriages aren't always working well. And their kids aren't growing up the way they plan. And they have real issues and struggles. And they have just, they're, they're some of, some, sometimes it's just a hot mess and you don't know where it's going to end. That's the truth about what's happening in this faith community. Some know the Bible quite well. Some don't know it at all. Some are just kind of taking their first steps on their journey with Jesus. That's okay. Because we're here to support one another. And we're here to love one another. And we're here to bear one another's burdens. We're here to forgive one another. And we're here to make a difference in this community for His kingdom. We're here to help people come to know Jesus for the first time because we have demonstrated what Christ-likeness looks like. That's what the, the lesson is for us from what Jesus talks about in this chapter. That if we're going to be His church, it should show. I mean, it's not about us showing up on the weekend and, and going off and doing our own thing. It's about understanding that we're part of a faith community. And you know what? I would say today, more than any other day, people are less likely to, to say, 
I am committed and affiliated with this faith community. People like to keep their options open. They like to jump over here for this and over here, but don't we do that, don't we? We find a good shopping center or a good store or a good restaurant, and we say, well, I like this restaurant now, but, but then they're at another restaurant, and that's fine. But when we bring that into the church community, and again, I'm not, I'm just, I'm describing, okay? I'm not preaching now, I'm describing, all right? When that comes into the church, you kind of go, okay, so do you understand what it means to be part of this faith community? Some of you have been coming, but you haven't committed to this community. And I'm thinking, okay, and I'll, I'll say this, I haven't said it for a number of years. If you don't feel like you can connect to this faith community, then go somewhere else and connect and become a part of that faith community. Because Jesus uses too many pictures like, I'm the cornerstone of this new community. It's the body of Christ. We're all members. One's an arm, one's a hand. And the body is lacking. When he starts using this, what he's saying is, you have to commit to be part of something. And I know that goes against our culture, but that's not what Jesus is calling. Jesus is calling us to be committed to a group of people. Have you made that commitment? Will you make? And they're imperfect and they're going to say things that are dumb and hurt your feelings and, and all that stuff. And maybe the pastor will do it too. He's been known to make people angry sometimes. But we're in a perfect community. And Jesus basically says, I'm the cornerstone of this new community and I gave my life so that my church, my bride, could thrive. Can we just agree that somebody in this community, and maybe it's us, needs to be that faith community to make a difference for this community, for the kingdom of God? And I don't know what other churches are doing. And I don't really care what other churches are doing. And I mean that in a sense that I have a, we have enough to worry about here. But can we just agree that our role is to come together and do something great for His kingdom. And it may be to overlook other people's faults and it may be to forgive and it may be to love people who are difficult to love and to realize that we haven't arrived and not everyone has arrived and we're kind of different and we kind of you know, brush up against and bump each other, but we're willing to forgive other people because Christ forgave us. And we're here to serve. Because we're not, it's not about us. It's about His kingdom. It's about His vineyard. We're servants. We're guests in His kingdom. We're here for Him. That's what Jesus is talking about when He talks about the vineyard. It's not some, something about the prophets and the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. It's about that, but it's not about that. It's about us right now. And what kind of church are we going to be? May we be the church that Jesus looks upon fondly. Let me tell you where we're going to go next weekend, and I've kind of already hinted at it. I believe that Jesus has simplified life for us as a follower of Jesus Christ. He has given us a comprehensive guide for life. He answers the question, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? That's what we're going to talk about next weekend. But let me pray with you right now. Father, uh, help us. Help us to take your word wherever it needs to go to our hearts. 
to change whatever needs to change, to grow what needs to grow, to correct what needs to be corrected. And may you be glorified because we have allowed your spirit and your word to change us from the inside out. May we understand what our role is as we're part of your vineyard, your new community, with Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And we bow down to him and we give our lives again to him because he gave his life to us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.